it's close enough to Christmas that I decided to do what I usually do around Christmas season, and that is choose a text that has to do with the Christmas story. We've usually dealt with Christmas-related doctrines and Bible texts. I mean, I love the Puritans, but I'm not Puritan enough to, to uh, be opposed to the celebration of Christmas like they were. And so we, uh, we usually focus on the incarnation of Christ or some related doctrine around this time. Mike preached on the incarnation last week. Two years ago, I think it was, I preached on Matthew 2 and the cruelty of Herod the Great. And I was looking at the record. Five years ago, we, we looked at uh, uh, Isaiah 7, which Jeremy read this morning. You may wonder why I asked him to read that passage, if it was just to test to see if he could pronounce all those difficult to pronounce. <laughs> I thought he did a really good job. Uh, but anyway, we looked at Isaiah 7:14. That is the famous prophecy about the virgin birth. Isaiah 7:14 is the one he ended with, the one that says, "The virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel." That's so one of those prophecies that that actually hints at not only the virgin birth of Christ, but also his deity, because the name Emmanuel means God with us. Earlier this year, they asked me in the evening service to preach on Micah, and I devoted a whole message, if you were here on that Sunday night, to Micah 5 verse 2, which is maybe my favorite of all of the Christmas prophecies because it names Bethlehem as the birthplace of Christ, and it's a prophecy that was written more than 750 years before Jesus was born. And Micah 5.2 is important not only because it foretold the birthplace of Messiah, but it, that verse also plainly declares his deity. Micah 5 verse 2, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. As for you, Bethlehem, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. So it's talking about the Messiah, the king, the coming king. His goings forth are from everlasting, from the ancient days. And the Hebrew in that text uses a verse, uh, uses a word that means that he has, he has come forth from eternity. In other words, he himself is eternal. And so that's another prophecy that foretold or hinted at the fact that the one who is eternal would come out of Bethlehem to be king of the Jews. That is what we celebrate at Christmas. It's a perfect summary of the incarnation that Christ, the eternal one, was born in human form. And so this morning, I want to pick up on what Jeremy was reading and go two chapters further. So we're going to take up in Isaiah's prophecy immediately after Isaiah's prophecy of the virgin birth. And I want the narrative to lead us to the next great Christmas prophecy, which is two chapters later, Isaiah 9, verse 6. And I want to look at that familiar text where Isaiah follows up the prophecy in 714, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. And now he develops that same theme. He's going to tell us about an infant to come who is no less than God incarnate, because this is a baby that has a set of names that belongs to God alone. I think I said it was five years ago we studied Isaiah 7, and we spent a considerable amount of time then going over the historical background, and I don't expect you to remember details that we covered five years ago. I can't remember what I did five days ago. So, so I just want to give you a quick review. Here's what's going on. Isaiah had delivered this prophecy during the time of the wicked king Ahaz in Judah. Ahaz's kingdom was under attack. And Isaiah comes to him with a prophecy of good news, this is what Jeremy read this morning, tells him that the military threat against the city of Jerusalem will not succeed. This is the word of God to him. He's a wicked king, but the Lord assures him that his city will not be defeated. Isaiah 7, verse 7, it shall not stand, nor shall it happen. That's what that verse means. They're not going to succeed in this attack against Jerusalem. But Ahaz was so wicked, he did not want to hear anything from the Lord, even if it was good news. And, and verse 11 in Isaiah 7 says that the Lord offered to give Ahaz a sign, any sign he chose. He could choose the sign, 
to prove that this message is true and that he can rest and trust the Lord to deliver the city. But Ahaz refused to even ask for a sign because he didn't want any kind of accountability or obligation to God. And so God gave him a sign anyway. And it was a sign of the virgin birth. That's what it means in Isaiah 7.14 when it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she'll call his name Emmanuel. Now remember, Emmanuel is a Hebrew name that literally means God with us. And so the, this prophecy in chapter 7 strongly hints at the truth of the incarnation. Here's an infant whose very name evokes the idea of God, and that then is the very same theme that Isaiah is going to develop in our passage for this morning, Isaiah 9, verse 6. So, But I want to pick up Isaiah's prophecy at the spot where Jeremy left off reading this morning and point out, you can follow me through Isaiah 7 and 8, and we'll get to chapter 9 pretty quickly. But the rest of Isaiah 7 and 8 is a lengthy discourse that continues a dire prophecy of judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria. Isaiah, you know, prophesied in the southern kingdom, Judah, and Ahaz was king over Judah. And the northern kingdom, Israel, had, of course, been born in a rebellion against the Davidic dynasty. And so that kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, had an entire history of being ruled by wicked kings. Ahab and Jezebel and so on. They were all rulers in the northern kingdom. There wasn't a single good king in the northern kingdom after the kingdom divided. And uh, at times, Israel even made, Israel being the northern kingdom, made military alliances with pagan nations. Sometimes they aligned with their brothers in Judah, but they would just as easily make alliances with the pagans. And during this particular era of Isaiah's ministry, the northern kingdom, Israel, had made an alliance with Syria, and they were preparing to attack Judah. And in fact, while Isaiah is writing this prophecy, the armies of Israel and Syria are camped outside Jerusalem, threatening to overthrow King Ahaz. Ahaz himself is one of Judah's unfaithful kings. He was an idolater. He was a man of such wicked character that when he died, They refused to bury Ahaz in the Valley of the Kings outside Jerusalem so that his presence there wouldn't defile the memories of the good kings that had ruled Judah in the line of David's descent. But as he faced this threat from the unholy alliance between Syria and Israel, God sends this prophecy, tells Ahaz, you've nothing to fear from them. Look at the end of Isaiah 7, 16. The land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. It's talking about Pekah, the king of Israel, and Rezin, the king of Syria. Both of them would be deposed, and their people would be taken captive by the Assyrians, so that even the land of Israel would become empty and desolate. And in chapter 7, verse 25, Isaiah tells Ahaz, you will not go there, talking about into the territory of the northern kingdom. You won't go there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place for pasturing oxen and, a, and for sheep to trample. So, and that's exactly what happened. Israel, the northern kingdom was taken captive and the land was laid waste. This is the very same judgment that had been foretold ages before this by Moses in Leviticus 26, verses 27 and through 33, read this. This is God speaking to the whole nation of Israel and Judah. If you do not obey me, but walk in hostility against me, I will then destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars, and I will give your cities over as a waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who inhabit it will themselves feel desolate because of it, You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. And that judgment, which dates back to Moses, was about to be fulfilled against the northern kingdom of Israel. But notice that as we move into Isaiah chapter 8, the prophecy turns against Judah, the southern kingdom, as well. Bear in mind that 
Isaiah came to Ahaz with a prophecy that should have been good news for him. Isaiah 7, verse 4, take care and stay quiet and have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. That's how it describes these two kings who were taking the offense. But Ahaz didn't receive the good news, and so Isaiah's message turns to a prophecy of doom for Ahaz. That is, by the way, true of everyone who hears the gospel and responds with unbelief or rejection. Those who turn away from God's message of good news, they'll always receive judgment instead. I believe that is exactly what the writer of Hebrews has in mind in Hebrews 10.26 when he says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, in other words, if we turn away willfully from the good news of the gospel, then the writer of Hebrews says, there remains no, no further sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That's exactly the position Ahaz was in. It rejected the good news. Now he gets subsumed into the prophecy of doom that was originally meant for the northern kingdom and Syria. And notice, Isaiah chapter 8 opens with a reference to the birth of Isaiah's own son, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, my favorite name in all of Scripture. (laughs) The name in Hebrew means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. We talked about naming one of our kids that, and Darlene said no. (laughs) She was pretty definitive about it, too. But this baby's name was another prophecy about the defeat of Israel and Syria. Quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. Look at what it says, chapter 8, verse 1. Then Yahweh said to me, Take for yourself a large tablet and write on it the, in ordinary letters concerning Meher Shalhal Hashbaz. And I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. And then I drew near to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And Yahweh said to me, Call his name Meher Shalhal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So Damascus, Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. So God is prophesying and builds it into this baby's name, the idea that this land is about to become waste. So now look at the parallel here. In Isaiah seven fourteen. God gives this sign, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey in order that he will know to refuse evil and choose good, for before the boy will know how to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So in chapter 7, you have the prophecy of the birth of Emmanuel whose name is a name of comfort, God with us. And the prophecy there is that before he's old enough to make deliberate choices, the enemy lands of Syria and Israel will be laid desolate. And then in the next chapter, chapter 8, you have another infant, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, and his name is a name of judgment. And before he is old enough to say mommy or daddy, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So there's a clear parallel between these two infants, but it's also clear that they're different. It's not talking about the same child here. One is a sign of blessing. The other one is an omen of judgment. And chapter 8 then goes on to unfold more details about the impending judgment of Israel and Syria. Look at chapter 8, verse 6. Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoice in Rezin and the son of Remaliah, now therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the mighty and abundant waters of the river, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. Okay, so what does this mean? Shiloh is another name for Siloam. That's the spring that flowed 
near the temple in Jerusalem, the pool of Siloam, the people of Judah had refused the Lord's goodness just as Ahaz, their king, had rejected Isaiah's message of good news. And therefore, it says, the waters of the river would overflow and sweep through their land. And this is a reference to the river Euphrates, which doesn't flow anywhere near Jerusalem. But the idea was that the armies of Assyria, would, which came from the region of the Euphrates, they would overthrow the city. Now remember, Ahaz had not only spurned Isaiah's message that God would protect Judah, but he had also tried to buy security from the Assyrians by bribing them. He had given the king of Assyria all of the gold and treasures from the temple of God. Second Kings chapter 16 verse 8 says, Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of Yahweh and in the treasuries of the king's house, and he sent a gift to the king of Assyria. So, he refuses to trust in the Lord, and instead he wants to buy security for Judah by trying to bribe the Assyrians with the gold from the temple of all things. And therefore the Lord said the Assyrians would be their undoing, not Syria and Israel who were currently threatening But the Assyrians, who they tried to bribe for security, they would be the ones to overrun them. Assyria would not only defeat the alliance between the northern kingdom and Syria, but the destruction from that was going to spill over into Judah, and Judah would suffer as well. Continuing with Isaiah chapter 8, verse 8, then it will sweep on into Judah, it will overflow and pass through, it will reach even to the neck, and The spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. And suddenly, we're right back to a reference to the Emmanuel prophecy. Now, this is a clear reference to Messiah, who is the rightful heir to this land, which is why it's called your land, O Emmanuel. And that verse, therefore, injects a kind of a subtle note of hope In the midst of this prophecy of doom, Judah was going to be overwhelmed and defeated at the hands of the Assyrians. The people would suffer horribly, verse 9, be broken, O peoples, and be shattered, and give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. But then, according to verse 10, ultimately it will be thwarted. Devise counsel, but it will be thwarted. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. And of course, that is the meaning of Emmanuel's name. God is with us. So so it's a subtle prophecy that Messiah would bring triumph for the faithful, even in the midst of crushing defeat. Those who fear the Lord can always find refuge in Emmanuel. Verse 13, It is Yahweh of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your cause of trembling. Then he shall become a sanctuary. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many will stumble over them. They will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. Now, by the way, That is one of the most often quoted Old Testament passages that you find in the New Testament, that the Messiah would become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. This is full of rich messianic meaning because the heart and soul of this whole passage revolves around this promised child who would be born of a virgin, God with us, Emmanuel. And so now we move into chapter 9. And notice, there's a running theme here of light versus darkness. And it starts really in chapter 8, verse 20. I love the way the Legacy Standard Bible highlights this theme of light and darkness throughout this passage, starting with chapter 8, verse 20, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. And they will pass through the land hard-pressed and hungry, and it will be that when they are hungry, they will be angry, and they will curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. They will be banished into thick darkness. And then chapter 9 starts with this. 
but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. By the way, those were the lands that were so devastated by the Assyrian invasion. But again, there's this messianic ray of hope and light in the midst of all the gloom and darkness. And in fact, those northern regions of the land of Israel, especially Galilee, these were the places that would be both would be most blessed by Messiah's earthly ministry. We know that from the New Testament. That's where Christ focused most of his earthly ministry in those very regions. Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. So again, you see the darkness versus light theme. Those who live in the land of the shadow of death, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall make great their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall shatter the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their taskmaster as the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior and the rumbling of battle and cloak rolled in blood will be burning fuel for the fire. In other words, what it's saying here is that ultimately peace will reign and the instruments of warfare, right down to the sandals, the warrior's war, all of it will be put to use as fuel. It will be burned because it won't be necessary for war anymore. And again, the context is clear. These are messianic promises. Isaiah is still talking here about the coming of Messiah. And that brings us now to the verse that we're looking at this morning. And Isaiah returns to the imagery of a child being born. Three chapters in a row have featured this theme. In chapter 7, the child's name was Emmanuel, God with us. Chapter 8, Isaiah's own child is named Meher Shalal Hashbaz, which is a name, again, of judgment and doom. But now he returns to the one who is God with us. How do we know that? Because the names of this child make it obvious. These are the names of God. Verse 6. And you know this verse. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, there's so much to say about this verse. I'm, I'm convinced this is one of those prophecies that Peter had in mind in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. 12 where Peter tells us that even the prophets did not always understand the full depth of everything that they prophesied. Peter says, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which have now been declared to you. In other words, Isaiah and all the other Old Testament prophets, I presume, they knew that they were giving prophecies that were more far-reaching and more meaningful than they themselves could possibly realize and understand. They were speaking to future generations who would see these prophecies unfold. They were serving not themselves, but you. And Peter says, even the angels desired to look into these things. So there's this profound layer, many layers of meaning in this prophecy that clearly look beyond the context of Isaiah's time and speak of the coming of Christ. So I think it's obvious from the language of the verse itself that this is describing something vast and unprecedented. This is a a newborn infant whose names are appropriate only for eternal deity. Names that would only apply to God himself. Names like mighty God and everlasting Father. And so, to the Jewish nation, Isaiah's prophecy is news of a coming king. The child who would be born, Isaiah says, will shoulder the government. So that could be no one other than the Messiah, the long-hoped-for Redeemer and King of Israel. But the, the language Isaiah employs to describe him is also language that is suited only for God. These are divine names. And so you put this together with Micah 5.2 and Isaiah 7.14, and all of it is proof 
that the deity of Christ was featured prominently even in the Old Testament prophecies. And in fact, our verse stresses both the humanity and the deity of Christ. A child will be born to us. That declares his humanity. He's born as a child. He doesn't merely appear in human form like the angelic appearances of Christ that you have occasionally in the Old Testament, where he appears in a kind of human form. But here he is born into this world as an infant, and he has to grow and develop to manhood like any other child. Luke chapter 2 talks about this, that he grows in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men, and that's talking about the human side of Christ, the human nature of Christ. He's truly human in every respect. So he shares all of our natural, non-sinful weaknesses. You know, he gets tired, he gets thirsty, he gets hungry, all of those things. He has all the normal human weaknesses. He is dependent on his earthly mother and father for all of his earthly needs as an infant. He, He learns obedience as he grows. He grows in favor with God and men. Nothing epitomizes the truth of Christ's humanity more than his infancy and his childhood. You see it there. He felt everything we feel. He hurt like we hurt. He wept like we weep. He was fully human in every sense. But the other expression emphasizes his deity. A son will be given to us. Now, as a human and the son of men, Christ is born into this world. But as the eternal son of God... He is not born, he's given. He is begotten of the Father, not made. And in fact, that familiar expression, the only begotten Son of God, that speaks of his eternal relationship with the Father. Christ had no beginning. He was eternally begotten by his Father from before the foundation of the world. And when Scripture says he is begotten by the Father, that's not talking about his origin. That's not, that's not where he comes from. It's talking about an eternal relationship within the Trinity. It's eternal by definition. Christ, the eternal Son of God, always existed in that relationship to the Father. And so when he left heaven to come to earth, God was giving his own Son into this world. And so many verses in Scripture expressly say that, including John 3.16, the most familiar text in all of Scripture, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6 says, when He brings the firstborn into the world, He says, and let all the angels of God worship Him. Martha's confession in John 11 verse 27, just before the raising of Lazarus, she says this, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who comes into the world. So, in other words, this is not just an ordinary baby. This is God's own eternal Son entering the world, an eternal being who leaves heaven to come to earth. Unto us, a son is given, and his names then prove that he's God. So let's look at the extraordinary names that are given to this child who was promised. And there are four of them. You know, if you're accustomed to the phrasing of this text from Handel's Oratorio, Messiah, you might count it as five. You know, wonderful, counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. That sounds like five because Handel took his phrasing from the King James Version, which inserts a comma after the word wonderful. But, but wonderful is an adjective, it's not a name, and modern translations, I think, properly leave that comma out so that there are actually four names given here, and there's a kind of poetic parallelism between the names. Each of them is exactly two words in the Hebrew, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. You can't say the last one without three words in English, but it's two in, in Hebrew. And think about that again. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. Those are remarkable titles for a newborn baby, right? I mean, this is no ordinary child. And in fact, notice it says, the government will rest on his shoulders. So he's not only the son of man and the son of God, but also the king of kings. 
So what does this expression mean? The government will rest on his shoulders. I think this is looking far beyond Christ's birth into this world as an infant, and it's describing a time that is still, even now, in the prophetic future, when Christ will reign over a literal, earthly, geopolitical kingdom that will encompass all the kingdoms and all the governments of the world. I'm not a big fan of, uh, you know, the globalists who want a one-world government right now, but when Christ comes and wants to take the reins of government, I'm for it, okay? (laughs) Zechariah 14 verse 9 says, Yahweh will be king over all the earth. In that day, Yahweh will be the only one, and his name, one. Daniel 2.44, the God of heaven will cause a kingdom to rise up which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will stand forever. So in that day, you know, in the culmination of all things, the government of the entire world will rest on the shoulders of Jesus Christ, and he will reign as a sovereign over a worldwide kingdom of righteousness and peace. And I, I, I don't care what eschatological scheme you, you adhere to. If you really believe what the Bible says, you believe that, that Christ will one day literally rule the earth. And in the meantime, his government operates in secret. And scripture says his kingdom and his sovereign rule are manifest within those who trust him and obey him as their Lord. And he rules, therefore, in the hearts of his people. Luke 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus says, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look here or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So the hallmarks of Christ's rule are righteousness and peace. And that's true whether he's ruling in our hearts or literally reigning over all the earth in that future millennial kingdom, which he will do. All the characteristics of his rule are reflected in his names. And so I want to look at the names. And notice that they, these names are given specifically to reflect what kind of ruler Christ is. What kind of Lord do we obey? What kind of king are we submissive to? The names tell us. So look at them one at a time. First, he is called Wonderful Counselor because he sorts out all of our confusion. Christ is a wonderful counselor. You study the New Testament descriptions of how Christ answered people who came to him for counsel or help. He always knew just what to say, and he knew when to be tender and when to rebuke, and there are times when both are appropriate. He was a friend to publicans and sinners, and he was the adversary of hypocritical false counselors like the scribes and Pharisees. And in fact, Isaiah 42, verses 2 through 4, poetically describe him with these terms. And this, is, this prophecy, by the way, is quoted in Matthew 12, verses 19 through 21, where Isaiah says, "'He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A crushed reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not extinguish.'" He will bring forth justice in truth. He will not be faint or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. Now, that's interesting imagery. I think I've talked about it before, but just to review, the smoking flax, that that pictures the wick of a lantern, nearly spent, about to go out. It's ineffectual for giving light. It makes maybe more smoke than it does light. That's the smoldering wick. The bruised reed is a a cheap flute that would be whittled out of a hollow stalk, a reed. And when it's fresh and new, it gives a crisp sound, but after it gets old and worn, it's no longer useful for making music. And these images, therefore, picture people who are, people like us, who are mentally and emotionally worn out and frustrated, fatigued, in many cases, spiritually ineffectual, discouraged. People like that came to see Christ all the time during his earthly ministry, and he never dealt with them harshly. He always lovingly counseled them how they might find rest for their souls. In Luke 4, verse 18, and again, Luke here, citing a prophecy from Isaiah 61, 
Jesus describes His own ministry this way, "'The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed.'" So, Christ is both a tender and and powerful counselor. The testimony of people who heard Him was, never has a man spoken like this. That's John 7, verse 46. You think about it, there's no shortage of counselors in the world today and, and no shortage of people seeking counsel. So, people flock to psychiatrists and psychoanalysts religious gurus, card readers, fortune tellers, radio talk show hosts, all kinds of counselors. Some people even come to see me for counsel. (laughs) And frankly, most of those sources will give lousy counsel because most counselors are lousy counselors. And I don't pretend to be an expert myself, but there is one counselor who is truly wonderful. He speaks with authority. He's the source of all truth. He's the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's full of grace and truth. He alone is the one who can sort out all of our confusion. Jesus himself said in John 18, 37, for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. I like that. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Some people put a mystical slant on that. Like, if you're really of the truth, you can hear Jesus speaking in your head. That's not what he's saying. How do we hear his voice? You hear it through his word. If you want some wonderful counsel, you'll find it in Scripture, which is the very word of God. And I'll be the first to admit that as a counselor, I'm something short of wonderful, I don't always know what to say. I sometimes don't know how to untangle the knots of the consequences of someone's sin. People come usually when they're desperate, and by the time they're desperate, their lives are so tangled with the consequences of sin that I don't think any earthly counsel can completely untangle it. And I know that personally, I'm not very good at fitting all the broken pieces of a shattered life back together. But I know where to point people for grace and help in time of need. So I point them to Christ because he is a wonderful counselor who sorts out all of our confusion. So look at the second name. First, as a wonderful counselor, he sorts out our confusion. Second, he is the mighty God because he satisfies all of our cravings. I think it was the philosopher Blaise Pascal who first said, There's a God-shaped vacuum in everyone. And Augustine said something similar at the beginning of his book, Confessions. He wrote this as a prayer to God. The whole book is a prayer. He starts out saying this, you have, speaking to God, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. So here is real satisfaction for every legitimate craving of the human heart. Take the mighty God to be your counselor and your redeemer and your friend, and you will find satisfaction. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 17, verse 15, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. There is true satisfaction, and it's not gained through the accumulation of worldly treasure or the enjoyment of earthly delights, that's where people look for satisfaction. But the real satisfaction is in God Himself. And in fact, David here is contrasting himself with worldly men. Psalm 17, and we've covered this psalm before. Remember, David is showing how his worldview differs from that of the wealthy and rich men who are full of worldly possessions. He says in Psalm 17, 14, deliver my life from from men, with your hand, Yahweh, from men of the world, whose portion is this life, and whose belly you fill with your treasure, they are satisfied with children and leave their excess to their infants. In other words, he's describing people who have everything they need by way of earthly blessings. Their bellies are full, they have children and plenty of earthly riches, 
but they're without God. And so Scripture says their only portion is in this life. And all of that can never satisfy the deepest cravings of the human heart. Some of the most miserable people in this world are the wealthiest. David understood that, and that's why he said, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I'll be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. He was looking beyond the grave there to the resurrection when he would be conformed to the image of the Redeemer who is God. And he says, that, that will satisfy me. To have God as my portion and to be as much like him as it is possible for a finite being to be, that is what will satisfy me in the end. That is the true satisfaction. And that's a constant theme in the Psalms. Listen to Psalm 36, verses 7 through 9. How precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the sons of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They are satisfied from the richness of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Again, what that's saying is that the only source of ultimate satisfaction is God Himself. Psalm 16:11, the psalmist says, In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 65, verse 4, how blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you that he would dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. Proverbs 19, 23, the fear of Yahweh leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied. And God himself makes this promise in Jeremiah 31, 14, my people will be satisfied with my goodness. That's the true satisfaction. If you want satisfaction for your soul's deepest cravings, no matter how you perceive what you crave, no matter what you think you want, what you really want is God, and you won't find any kind of satisfaction pursuing the things of this world. But delight yourself in Yahweh, and He will give you the desires of your heart. That's Psalm 37, 4. Because Jesus is the mighty God, Yahweh incarnate. He alone can satisfy all of our cravings. Now look at the third name on the list. Here is the everlasting Father, because He sustains all of creation. And at first glance, this name might seem a bit incongruous. The Son who is to be given to us is called the Eternal Father. It's a bit paradoxical, right? But once again, this is a statement about his deity. In fact, the Hebrew expression there might be better translated father of eternity rather than eternal father, father of eternity. That is, in fact, how it's translated in Jung's literal translation. It's just a way of saying that he is God. He is one with the father from everlasting to everlasting. You know, in Revelation twenty-two thirteen, Jesus calls himself the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, translates this phrase in Isaiah 9-6 this way. It says, He is the Father of the world to come. I'm not sure that's a great translation, but I think it gets, it maybe conveys a better idea than just simply eternal Father. He's not the Father like the Father in the Trinity. But he is the father of eternity. He is the author of eternal life to those who believe. And in that sense, he is to us the father of our eternity. You realize that Christ is both the creator and sustainer of the whole universe. Listen to Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17, which, by the way, reads like a commentary on that expression, father of eternity. In Colossians, Paul says, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And also Hebrews 1, where God the Father speaks to Christ the Son and acknowledges him, Father acknowledges the Son, as the one who created time out of eternity and who fashioned the universe from nothing. Now, he's not saying this is distinctly the Son's 
work and that the Spirit and the Father weren't involved. All persons in the Trinity were involved in creation. But Christ gets credit because he is, he is God the Creator, like every other person in the Trinity. He's the Father of eternity. Listen to the text rather than having me try to explain it. Hebrews 1, verses 10 through 12. This, by the way, is one of the greatest passages on the deity of Christ because here you have, and listen carefully, this is God the Father speaking to His only begotten Son. Hebrews 1, verse 10. God speaking says to the Son, You, Lord, in the beginning founded the earth, and the heavens are the works of Your hands. They will perish, but You remain. And they will all wear out like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Now, that's exactly what it means, I think, when this name applies to Christ, Father of Eternity. He created all things. He sustains all things. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's the Father of Eternity. He's the one who declared the end from the beginning, according to Isaiah 46.10. And even now, he is sustaining his creation. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, He upholds all things by the word of his power. There's a great amount of security in that, isn't it? So as the wonderful counselor, he sorts out all our confusion. As mighty God, he satisfies all our cravings. As eternal father, he sustains all of creation. And finally, as prince of peace, he settles all of our conflicts. Notice, Isaiah is promising a kingdom in which there are no conflicts. Because it's a kingdom ruled by the prince of peace. He's prophesying in the midst of horrible chaos, the city is under direct threat from unconquerable armies, seemingly in an impossible situation. They are surrounded by chaos and confusion and the threat of national destruction. But, Isaiah says, a child will be born, and this child, the son who is given to us, will bring peace. In fact, when Christ was born on earth... You remember, angels appeared to the shepherds with an announcement of peace, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, someone might be tempted to say, well, where's the peace? Because there really never has been complete peace on earth in 2,000 years since that first Christmas. All we've had are wars and rumors of wars, and that continues even today. But the angels' announcement doesn't mean that God is making peace with an evil world. You, you hear that sometimes misread and misapplied. Most of the modern versions of Scripture give, I think, a more accurate translation of that verse than the familiar words of the King James, which we sing and say every Christmas where the angels say, on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. But in fact, this is one of those rare texts where I think all of the modern versions and even the New International Version says it better. Here's Luke 2.14 in the NIV. This is what the angels were actually saying. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. He brings peace, first of all, to those on whom his favor rests. And who are they? Well, they're the elect. They are the ones who trust Him and yield to Him as their Lord and Savior. They're the ones whom He is king over in their hearts. And ultimately, when He establishes His literal earthly kingdom, He will bring lasting peace to all the earth. But meanwhile, God's peace is available in a significant way to you and to me. Again, Luke 17, 21, the kingdom of God is in your midst, and wherever the prince of peace rules, there is lasting peace. Romans 5, verse 1 says, those who have been justified by faith, that is, those who believe, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have peace with God, you have the basis for perfect peace. And Isaiah understood that. One of my favorite verses 
is Isaiah 26, verse 3. It's the verse I usually tack on when someone asks me to sign something. I'll put it under my name, Isaiah 26, 3. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Now, in fact, look one verse beyond our text, Isaiah 9, verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. In other words, what Isaiah is saying is, wherever he rules, his perfect government and perfect peace keep expanding and getting better. It's like we sing in that familiar hymn, Like a River Glorious. It speaks of peace that is perfect, yet it groweth fuller every day. Perfect, yet it floweth deeper all the way. How can anything that's perfect get better? That's one of the great things about Christ's kingdom. It just gets better and better, and the perfect peace gets deeper and deeper. And so, Isaiah gives us the message of Christmas in prophetic form. It's the promise of God in human flesh, a newborn infant who is the father of all eternity. He's born an innocent child, and yet he is a wise counselor and a mighty king. This is God with us, Emmanuel. Unto us a child is born. Who's us? Everyone? No, Isaiah means those who believe. Isaiah was speaking to the godly remnant of Israel. There's no savior, there is no hope, there is no peace, no eternal life, no mighty power, no wise counsel for anyone who does not know Jesus Christ. But those who embrace him by faith enter his kingdom, so he becomes their counselor. Their lives are transformed by his power. He settles their conflicts. He sorts out their confusion. He satisfies their cravings. His peace rules in their hearts. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. In other words, Christ himself guarantees it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the great truth that we celebrate this season, that you sent your only begotten Son to be the perfect sacrifice that atones for our sin, brings us peace, gives us wise counsel, rules in a way that makes our lives satisfying. May we honor him appropriately in all of our celebrations this week. May he rule in our lives in perfect righteousness. And may you conform us to his likeness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.